Peter chapter 3, please. 1 Peter 3. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, we started our study here in this 1 Peter 3, verse 4. Um, it's just, excuse me, 1 Peter 3 and, and 4, I should say. And we only got through a couple verses. <laughs> a lot of good questions, a lot of good conversation. Good study to have. It was a lot of fun. Real quick housekeeping question that popped up from last week. Uh, someone asked the question about um, when we stand before God or when non-believers stand before God, will they be able to speak before that? And the one verse that kind of came up after that was the Matthew 7 verse where it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me who practice lawlessness. And that's Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. Go back, listen to the message, and you'll find out what we were talking about there. So just a follow-up passage from that when uh, that question came up. So, we only got through verses really 18 and 19 last week, maybe a little bit of verse 20. So we're going to go ahead and pick up around that point. If you got your sheets there, we got through the first section there of that idea of what did that passage mean where it says Christ went and preached the spirits in prison. Fun verse to chew on. That's the beauty of Wednesday nights. We get to have that question answered. We get to chew on those things where on Sunday morning we wouldn't get that time to do that. So that's part of the beauty of Wednesday. Well, we kind of got into verse 20 where we talked about Noah and the ark and the eight souls that were saved through water. Now that's a very interesting passage. I tell you, if you just want to get into biblical debates, you just bring up once saved, always saved versus losing your salvation. And then you also bring up the idea of baptism. And what happens is these two things that are obviously very important in the whole context of Christianity, knowing whether you're saved or not and knowing the importance of baptism, it creates some really big arguments and debates. And it always just fascinates me when I see Christians get into these arguments and debates about these type of things. And it's tough. I remember years ago, years ago, um, I was asked to come sit down and talk with a gal about the idea of baptism. She was kind of confused. You know, what is the role of baptism? Is it the importance of, um, do you need to get baptized to get saved? What does it mean and all this type of stuff? So I said, sure, I'll go over and talk to her. So I went over and sat down and talked to her, and I didn't know that she brought in another pastor uh, from a church that believed the opposite of what I believed. So it basically turned into this roundtable debate discussion. And it was one of those things where I really realized at that time, there's no good. It just doesn't do any good to get into those type of things in any way whatsoever. And what happens is you run into verses like this in verse 20 where it says eight souls were saved through water. A lot of people have taken that verse and run with it. And you see verse 21, there's also an anti-type which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. The answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, I'm the first one to sit up here and tell you right now, I believe that baptism is vitally important to your Christian walk. I firmly believe that. I believe the f soon after you get saved, if you want to get water baptized, we will do everything in our power to try to find a spot to get you water baptized. We've had people get saved in the winter, and they have learned about the concept of baptism, and they said, I want this. And so we have gone into the YMCA's in Defiance, the YMCA's in Ottawa, and we have done a baptism in their pool. We'll just go in, and we'll just do it. We used to do that regularly, until the um, YMCA said, well, we're not allowed to do that. So we had to find some spots to go to. So then one time we went to a church in Lipsick. And you, I, you've heard me joke about this before. We did a water baptism in the winter in Lipsick. And it was the coldest baptism we've ever done. Um, it, was, it was scarily cold. Um, from here on out, we've done our winter baptisms now. We're very blessed over at the filling home. 
And it's like 90 plus degrees in there, and it's really, really nice. So we will do a baptism. We will try to do it as quick as we can, and we'll probably try to do one this summer. We've gotten to the point now where we'll do two, three baptisms a year because we think it's important. Now, we don't think it's salvation. I'll make that abundantly clear, but I think it's really important. What are we talking about when it comes to this picture of baptism? What are we dealing with right here? Well, you see what it kind of says, and I think this is important. This baptism is a picture of our salvation. You've heard us teach on this because any time we talk about baptism, we always explain it. Baptism is an outside sign to show an inward change. And that's what it is. When I get saved and I become born again in Christ, yes, my actions change, hopefully. Yes, my words change. Yes, my attitude changes. But there's not a visible change that happens just like that. Baptism is a picture of that change that happened on the inside. When you go into the water, the water represents the cleansing that has happened in Christ. You go under the water, we do full immersion out here, which shows us dying to ourselves. And then when you come out of the water, it shows you coming up born again in Christ. And as we like to joke about, uh, Rich always throws the last one in, you come up looking like a drowned rat, which shows humbleness. It's a humbling thing to get baptized. There's all these people around you, and yet you're going into the water, and you're the only one getting wet. So there's a humbleness of it. But it's a, it's a picture of our relationship with Christ, and we think it's vital. And I'll just throw this out there. Anytime someone gets baptized, I also tell them, be aware, you have a huge bullseye now on your back because you've made the biggest public confession you can of Christ. And so when you make that public stand for the Lord, the enemy is going to do whatever he can to shoot you down. That's one of the reasons why I loved when we got baptized at the YMCA. Everybody's just swimming. Here we are, three guys, just walking into the pool, and next thing you know, you're just baptizing people. People are diving and swimming, and they're stopping and looking, wondering what's going on. That's the closest we can get almost to what it was like with the Jordan, where people were lining up to get baptized, but yet people were out there doing their daily routine. It's a really neat thing to publicly go into that and say, here we are making this public stand for Christ. So if you look now, going back, verse 21, there's also an anti-type which now saves us, baptism. Note, Peter comes right out and says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. He goes, it's not the water that's doing anything to save you. It's not the water making you clean. It's not the water that's giving you entrance into heaven. The water's not doing anything. What is the thing that's happening? Look at the second part of verse 21. The answer of a good conscience towards God. It's your heart that's being cleansed. And the baptism is a picture of what's happening on the inside. So baptism is an outward sign of the inward change that has happened in Christ Jesus, the good conscience towards God. And how is that happening? Look at the end of verse 21. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. It's an example of your heart being changed towards God through Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, and it's a visible sign to the world to say, I am now making a public declaration of Christ. That's what it is. Is it important? It's vitally important. And I encourage anybody, if you have not been baptized, to consider being baptized. Maybe if you were baptized as an infant and you're like, well, should I be baptized as an adult? Come talk to me. Or maybe I was baptized years ago and I kind of fell away. Should I be rebaptized? Come talk to me. I highly encourage you to do it. It is a great step forward in your walk with Christ. It's a visible step of your changed life in the Lord. It's a public confession of Jesus. It's an amazing picture of what it is. Is it salvation? No. But it's a great picture of the salvation that has happened in you, and that's why it's such a vital, important thing. It's something that creates a lot of debate in churches, and I don't really think it has to be that way. When you really stop and just look at what the Scriptures are saying with this thing, I think God makes pretty clear of what it is. So, anybody have any quick questions, comments about baptism? And here in the context of what we're talking about in 1 Peter 3, does anybody have any quick questions, comments about that before we move on? Okay. All right. So then let's move on then, because 
Now, what's Jesus doing? Verse 22, he's gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having made subject to him. I love this verse. Can you turn with me, please, to Hebrews 10? Hebrews 10. I always find it fascinating. We've been, when we do devotions with the boys, it's always fascinating to see what questions a, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old are going to ask. And sometimes they ask questions that I, I really don't know how to answer. And sometimes they do things that I don't even know what to think of that. I walked into the restroom here before coming on to uh, teach, and my two oldest boys were in there. It was just them. And they had looks on their faces like they were doing something wrong. I said, Elias and Judah, I said, what are you doing? They said, we're just getting ready to go to class. I said, well, then why don't you go to class? And Elias, who just has a conscience where he can't lie about anything. I mean, Judah could kill somebody, bury the body, and never tell us. I mean, that's just Judah. Not literally people, not literally hyperbola. Elias, he, he just is guilty about everything. So I'm basically like, just go. I know you're being bad. God will judge you. Just we'll worry about it later. Elias comes up and says, well, actually, we were hitting each other with Bibles. I said, what were you doing? He goes, we were hitting each other with Bibles. And I said, why were you hitting each other with your Bibles? Judah, straight face, goes, well, that way we can hear God better. That's what he said. So, so if you wonder what the pastor's kids are doing before church, they're in the bathroom hitting each other in the head with Bibles so they can hear God better. So that's what's going on in the Irvin household. Hebrews 10, question that came up recently with the boys, they want to know what Jesus is doing in heaven. You know, we've been talking about Christ and the Gospels at home, so we've gone through his life, we've been talking about it. He lived 33 years, he died, he ascended into heaven. And so now they're like, well, what's he doing? Well, he's waiting for, for the time to come back to rapture us out. Okay, but what's he doing? Well, Hebrews tells us, what is he doing? Because 1 Peter 3, which we just read right there, he's gone into heaven, he's at the right hand of God. So what's he doing here? Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, stop right there for a second. Now, there's a deeper answer to this, so please don't take it literally. What is Jesus doing in heaven right now? Nothing. You know why he's doing nothing? Because it is finished. Now, yeah, he's doing something. Yes, there's a deeper answer to that. But what's he doing? Nothing. Because it is finished. That is a vital point. If Jesus still had to do something to earn your salvation, he couldn't have said on the cross, it is finished. That's why Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 is so important. Look at the difference here. Verse 11, every priest stands ministering daily. Verse 11, offering repeatedly. The same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's Old Testament. Every day the priests are offering sacrifices. Every day the priests are trying to make themselves holy in God. We went through the Leviticus not too long ago. It's this daily routine of animals dying and being sacrificed. But look at verse 12. But this man, Jesus, offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Old Testament, numerous priests, numerous times during the day, repeatedly offering sacrifices. Verse 12, Jesus, one man, one sacrifice, done forever. Look at verse 12. Sat down. Now, why is he sitting down? It's a picture of his work is complete. I mean, have you ever had one of those days where you've just worked very hard, very difficult, long day, and you've come in and you almost feel like you've earned this time just to sit? Jesus earned the time to sit. It's over. It's done. So he's now, verse 13, waiting. He's just waiting for God the Father to say, Now's the time, return. Take back your bride. Take back your church. Take back the earth. He's waiting and sitting. Now, I like that because that shows to me that I have a Savior that is always available to me. 
He's not too busy dying again that he can't meet my needs. He's always available to me. It's kind of like you have that person that you always know that you can get a hold of them. You just know they're always going to be there for you. And that's what it is with Christ. What is he doing? He is now up in heaven sitting. My Savior, my friend, my brother, my betrothed, is just sitting there waiting for me to call upon him. And he's also sitting there waiting for the time to return. What a reassuring feeling that is. It reminds me when I was a kid, we... Uh, our house, the bottom part of it was actually in the basement, and that's where my sisters and I slept, and we had our family room down there. And I can still to this day remember as a kid, anytime mom and dad put us to bed, that they would sometimes stay down and just watch a TV show. And my door would be open, and I could see the light of the TV, etc. And it was just such a reassuring thing as you're laying there going to bed, knowing mom and dad are just a few feet out that door. There's nothing to worry about. They're there. You know that. Same thing happens now with my kids. We put them to bed, and they're like, hey, can we just leave the door open a little bit? That reassurance that mom and dad are there. Isn't it reassuring knowing that your Savior is doing what? He's just chilling out in heaven. Now, that's not what the King James says, but he's just chilling out in heaven, waiting. He's always there for us, and what a blessing that is that we have this access to him. Man, Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.16, we can boldly go to the throne room of grace. Right there he is, just waiting for us, waiting to return. What a beautiful picture that is. So that's what he's doing. Now, it changes subjects here in verse 1 of chapter 4 because we see what Christ has done. He's completed the task. He's finished his duties. He is now taking care of everything. Verse 1, Therefore, since Jesus has done all this for us, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer shall live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Basically what Peter is coming out and saying is, hey, Christ suffered for us, so therefore it's time now for us to suffer in the flesh for him. What's it mean to suffer in the flesh? Verse 1. It means that I know there's things in my life that are destructive, that pull me down, that hurt my marriage, hurt my kids, hurt the church, and I will then say no to them. The truth of the matter is, sin is enjoyable, as the Bible says, for a season. If sin was not enjoyable... Why would we want to do it? I remember years ago I taught that one time and someone kind of got bothered and they said, you, you shouldn't say that sin is enjoyable. I've sinned. It is enjoyable. The problem is there's consequences to that joy. And the problem is Hebrews says it only lasts a moment. And there's eternal ramifications for it. If sin was painful immediately, none of us would do it. The problem is there's a tiny, temporary, physical, fleshly pleasure that comes out of sin followed by shame and guilt and conviction it's not worth it. But the problem is there's things in our lives, and I'm sure right now as I'm teaching this and you're hearing this, verse 1, there's things that you know I, I probably need to stop doing. Well, why is it so hard to let go of those things? Because the flesh gets some joy out of it. In verse 1, the Bible says we're supposed to suffer in the flesh like Christ did. We're supposed to be willing to put to death our bodies like Jesus was willing to put to death. Because what happens is, verse 2, how are you going to live your life? You're either going to live your life in the flesh or you're going to live your life in the will of God. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Every single choice you make, it's pretty simple, straightforward. Is this going to be something that's going to take me deeper in my relationship with Christ or is this going to be something that's going to hurt me and be destructive? We know what it's going to be. We have to make that decision because why look at verse 3? How much time have we wasted doing dumb things? How much time has been wasted in the flesh? Look at the description here. 
We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. We walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, wolveries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. Okay, we, we, we filled up our sin meter. Nothing good comes out of that. Peter is saying here, listen, nothing good's going to come out of this. You've already lived that life. It's not worth it. Jump, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 and 1 Peter chapter 4 are almost bookends to each other. You've got Peter's take on it, but you get Paul's take on it here in Romans 6. Let's, let's go to this in Romans 6, then we're going to stop and make a couple points about this. Romans 6, please. Romans 6 is a chapter that's all about death, but it's not about the physical death. It's about us spiritually dying to those things that hurt us. Romans 6 is a really tough chapter because it's constantly talking about Jesus died for you, so therefore you die for him. This is not martyrdom. This is not I go give my life for Christ physically. It's I choose on a daily basis to not indulge in sinful things that hurt me, my kids, the church, whatever, because I'm willing to die because Christ died too. So look at this. And there's lots and lots of great passages, and, and it's hard to, without doing a complete study on the whole chapter here, we got to pick someplace and we got to start. So with that being said, let's go ahead and start right back here in verse 11 of Romans 6. It says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we just talked about. I die to myself, but I live for Jesus. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Each day, verse 13, I choose how I present myself. Every action I do, I'm either presenting myself to God, saying I'm going to do this action for you, or I'm presenting it as I'm going to do this action for myself. Every single thing I do. Somebody at work ticks you off, you have a split-second decision. I can respond in the flesh and feel good for a little bit, and then I'll feel bad. Or I can respond as a Christian and realize I'm not going to present myself into sin. When your spouse says something, when your kids say something, when your friend says something, you have that split-second decision, how am I going to respond? And this is what we're dealing with here, is how do you present yourself, verse 13. Do you present yourself to sin, or do you present yourself to God? Every action we do, what are we going to do? Because look at verse 16 of this chapter. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. You choose who you may make yourself a slave to. I'm either going to be a slave to Christ and obey the word and the law, or I'm going to be a slave to whatever fleshly desire it is. Be it alcohol, be it drugs, be it pornography, be it lying, be it pride. I choose to do that. I am choosing to make myself a slave to that. Now, some people sit here and say, okay, James, it's not that easy. You don't understand addiction. You don't understand that. Listen, in verse 16, I know, and I battled stuff. You've battled stuff. We've all battled stuff, okay? Verse 16, we have to make a choice of what we want to do. Do we really want to let go of things or do we not? Yes, some certain things are really tough to let go of. I've heard testimonies of people that have really struggled with letting go of certain things in their life. And I've also heard testimonies of people where they've been able to let go of it overnight. But the point of this passage here in verse 16 is, who are you choosing to obey? Are you choosing to obey the flesh? Or are you choosing to obey God? See, if you're the person that has a temper, you're choosing to obey your temper. You're choosing to obey anger. I've made this comment and this joke before, so forgive me for the repetition, but I hear people come up to me all the time and say, well, I have a temper. My dad had a temper, so I have a temper. It's not genetic. It's not. You have a temper because you choose to have a temper. 
You have an anger problem because you choose to let situations control you and you choose to let your emotions get the best of you. Verse 16, you are choosing to obey anger rather than patience in God. And now fill in the blank with anger with any other sin you want to. You are choosing to obey that rather than God. This is the choice that we have to make. Verse 17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. You obeyed from where? The heart. See, until you want to stop, it's, it's not going to stop. You know, sometimes we'll get people that get in trouble with stuff. Maybe they got caught looking at something they shouldn't look at online. Maybe they got pulled over for doing something they shouldn't do. So what happens is they come into my office, and they say, I want to talk to you. And I say, okay. And let's just pick one. They, they were looking at, let's say, pornography online, and they shouldn't have. The wife walked in, whatever, saw them. And so they come in, and they say, I really want to stop. I say, okay, I think that's great. I'm glad you really want to stop. And I always ask them, why do you want to stop? And I kind of fumble around for a little bit, and I usually interrupt them. I say, do you want to stop because you got caught? Or do you want to stop because you know in your heart it's wrong? Well, I, I, I know it's wrong, so I want to stop. And it's like, okay, so if your wife didn't walk in, would you be asking you to stop right now? Probably not. See, that's what it's saying here in verse 17. You obeyed from the heart. I've had numerous people come in over the years wanting to quit something. Why? Because they got caught. And so now they're in trouble. So now they want to quit. They don't want to quit. Their heart doesn't want to quit. When your heart says, I want things to be different in my life, that's when changes really start to happen. You have to obey from the heart, verse 17. Because you have to choose. What, what good comes out of these things? Jump ahead to verse 21. What fruit did you have then in those things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin, who have become slaves of God and your fruit to holiness in the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It goes right back to what we're talking about in 1 Peter 3, where Peter came out and said, how much time have we wasted in our past lives? Well, Paul says in Romans 6.21, what good came out of all that junk? I mean, seriously, all of us could sit here right now and say, look at the wasted days and years and months that were wasted in doing things I shouldn't have done. Now, we could also sit here and kick ourselves the rest of the night about that. Hey, we're born again in Christ Jesus. We've become new creations in the Lord. We can move forward in our walk with Christ, and we can say that's the past me, and now I'm a different man. I'm a different father. I'm a different husband. I'm a different friend. That's what Christ does. That's the beautiful thing about it, is that's the old. Now we can focus on the new. And that's what Peter's trying to tell us. That's what Paul is trying to tell us is we can now focus on the new. Now, does anybody have any quick questions, comments about this before we move on? Okay, because I want to do something here. Look right now in verse 4, back in 1 Peter 3. Verse 3 told us we spent enough of our time wasting our lives. Romans 6, 21 said, what good came out of that? Okay, for you that have gotten saved and your life has changed and has changed dramatically, did you ever run into verse 4? In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They think it's strange. Now, I, I think that's a really interesting verse, and I like that verse. But I kind of like how the New Living Translation kind of says it here. I just want to read this to you real quick, and this is the uh, New Living Translation. Obviously, this is First Peter, First uh, Peter four, verse four. Just listen to this now, and tell me if this is something that's happened in your life. It says, "Of course, your former friends." are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. I like that. Of course your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, so they slander you. Now, it's 4th of July. We don't have as many people here on a Wednesday night as we normally do. I just want to throw this out there, and it may be cricket chirping silence. I don't know. But if you want to respond, I'd like to hear. Did any of you, when you first got saved, did you run into verse 4? Yeah, John. 
That's kind of interesting, like you said, being in from both sides of the fence, trying to pull him down, but then also being the one that tried to get pulled down later on. Anybody else go through that in verse 4? When you got saved, everybody just thought you were crazy. Lisa. Amen. Like you said, what a wonderful testimony it is when there's been so many changes in the Lord that it's like two totally different, literally totally different people. Anybody else have anything there in verse 4 they wanted to maybe kind of uh, share or throw out there? I always find it fascinating. Anybody else? Yeah, Rose. <laughs> John the Unbaptist. <laughs> right. And like you said, the key word there is, I used to. That, that's how I used to be. And one of the things I always tell people out here is that sometimes we get saved and we did have that very colored past, and we try to pretend that colored past never happened. The truth of the matter is, sometimes people, if they know what your past was, and I'm not saying glorify the sin, it even shows even more amazingly what Jesus Christ has done in someone's life. Because I know what happens is people come into this church and they just see everybody sitting here and they realize, gosh, everybody here is perfect. No one has troubles in their marriage. No one has troubles individually. And everybody's got it figured out. So when they come, they can't be honest because everybody here is perfect. And the truth of the matter is we've all struggled. We've all had ups and downs. We've all had problems. And it's interesting to know sometimes, hey, this is what the old me was. But look what Christ has done for me now. Yeah. Mm. All right. <laughs> and, and that is one of the hardest balancing acts to find is how do I realize I'm now born again in Christ and I don't run with the same crowd but at the same time I'm not holier than thou and that is a tough balancing act because the problem is sometimes people aren't strong enough spiritually to go back to the old crowd yet and if they go back to the old crowd they find themselves I'm just going to go and I'm just going to drink Pepsi and we're going to talk about the Lord and six beers later, the same things are happening that used to happen before. And, and that's where there is a fine line of, okay, God, I don't want to totally ignore who I was or those friends because I want to be a witness to them, but yet Holy Spirit give me wisdom and guidance because maybe I'm not strong enough to jump back into that yet. There's a balance there that has to be found. Yeah, Sandra. Amen. And, that, and that's what's neat is when you said you don't miss it. I think back to that passage in Romans 6 where it says, what fruit did you have in those things which are now ashamed? Is you, you think back. I don't, I don't miss those choices and lifestyle just brought me down. Yeah, Ron. Right. And that's a great word that you use, that transitional period, because every day we're becoming more and more like Christ. You know, the writer of Hebrews came out and said that there's some people that are babes, that need the milk, and there's other people that are ready for food. And, you know, one of the toughest things is, and I hear people tell me this all the time, is that they'll go out and make a public proclamation, I'm a Christian and things are different, then they make a mistake, and next thing you know, people are saying, oh yeah, so you're a super Christian now. You know, super Christians, they really talk that way, they really say those words, they really act that way, and we are all works in progress, there's no doubt about that. Anybody else have anything they want to say here? Yeah, Jody. <laughs> Amen. Wow. It's pretty neat. And that's the greatest testimony we have. It's the changed life. I mean, the greatest testimony is that one time when you always used to unload on them with every word you can imagine, you just keep your mouth shut. That's a testimony right there. It's an amazing thing. Amazing thing. All righty. But if anybody else doesn't have anything, it's 8 o'clock now, and i got people coming in. Yeah, surely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's, and that's an absolutely wonderful point, and that's kind of like we said earlier. The simple answer is he's not doing anything. The deeper answer is there's this whole heavenly scene going on where Satan's coming and making accusations against the brethren, and Christ is interceding as our defense attorney. And it's, it's an amazing picture of what's going on in heaven. The enemy is trying to pull us down, and Jesus just keeps saying, I got it covered, I got it covered. And that's the beautiful picture of salvation and mercy and grace. Oh, it's a wonderful thing. Hey, right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll let everybody go. Heavenly Father, just thank you for the time to be here tonight and just to share these testimonies and just to share this time, Lord. Thank you for that. We just ask that we, for your blessing as we leave here to be lights and witnesses for you. And all we say 
and all we do and just go before all things. We lift this up in your name. Amen. One final, uh, final announcement. Some of you may have gotten the email. Uh, there is a work day tomorrow over at the home of Ron and Lynn Dietering. They suffered some pretty big storm damage here from the storm last week. And so from 8 to 2, 8 to 2, there's a work day over at Ron and Lynn Dietering's house tomorrow. They live uh, outside of Macomb. If you're interested in that, feel free to pop over. If you don't know where it's at, uh, see me or see Rich. We can get you an address and let you know too. All right, you guys have a good week, and God bless.